everybody, it's Dan Woods of Early Adopter Research and I'm kicking off my visit to RSA 2019 in San Francisco with a podcast with Malcolm Harkins, Chief Security and Trust Officer of Silence. This is the first podcast we're doing and we're going to ask a set of three questions in each podcast and then some bonus questions if we have time. Our goal is to get to issues that CISOs have been struggling with and try to break some new ground and, and create some valuable research out of this eventually. So Malcolm, really happy to be with you. Thanks Dan, happy to be here. Now what I'd like to do first is just have you explain what Silance is and does. Uh, I would love it if you could do that by explaining Silance in context of the NIST framework, the identify, protect, detect, respond, and recover. Just explain to me, you know, quickly so that people who don't know Silence can, can get in a sense of what you guys do. So what we do in the context of the NIST cybersecurity framework is at an endpoint, whether it be a PC, a laptop, a server, uh, on, multiple uh, on multiple operating systems, we identify prior to the execution of code what is good and bad. We do it based upon our artificial intelligence and machine learning. We extract millions of features that allow us to identify that good and bad, protect the system from the execution of malicious code. And that, in essence, is the automated detection and response cycle. So you don't need to recover from a cyber event. But we also have an additive product called Optics. Optics is like a flight data recorder, um, a cryptographically stored and protected uh, set of processes and other things that are running on the machine that when you wanted to go do additional detection and recovery and response, you could use that product to search for issues in your environment or gain additional forensics. And is that second product about detecting things that may have gotten through? It can be used for a couple things. It could be used to hunt and go look for things that might be in your environment. It could also be used in a, I'd say a traditional endpoint detection response space, where again, you can use it for detection and response activities with your forensics team or your hunting team. But it also has the capabilities for what we're doing with uh, basically a prevention-based EDR because you can use certain uh, behaviors and anomalies that you can create rules on, and we call them ML packs, machine learning packs, that will basically take the detection capabilities and turn it back into a preventative product for things that might be, let's say, fileless or other attack techniques that might get past other controls and in execution of code. And so let's explain EDR just quickly. And when we talk about these acronyms, for the first time, let's you know, say what they are. So what is EDR? EDR is a category of products that's called endpoint detection and response. Got it. They're basically after the fact technologies that people use to react to an event once it occurs. Okay, so now in essence, you are creating a product that has as some of its goals, you know, what antivirus, you know, had as its goals, which is stopping bad code from executing, and also some of its goals as next generation firewalls had, which is stopping bad things from coming in. And, and, and you've got a, a new approach to that, and that's what Silence does. Uh, true, that is a completely new approach. It's a reimagination of the approach. And, and I would actually argue that 
some of the, the firewalls and, and traditional antivirus, they might have had the goal of stopping it, but the reality is they never actually achieved that goal. No, no. Otherwise, we wouldn't have seen the explosion of cyber risk that we have today. Got it. Okay. So now we're going to go through three questions, and now everybody knows the perspective that you're bringing. And these questions are attended, intended to give CISOs uh, some education about how they can think about these important issues. And the first question is about zero trust. What does zero trust mean in practice? You know, is zero trust another additive responsibility? Uh, does it take anything away? And for those who are new to the concept, zero trust means the idea that any uh, entity uh, inside a what was formerly thought of as a zone of trust uh, inside the firewall is now not actually considered trusted, but it is. Uh, it has to establish its trust every time. So the 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 idea is that you would be extra protected, uh, you know, inside that zone of inside what was formerly a zone of trust. But what's interesting to me is that. You know, as you think about this, you think, oh, okay, now we're inside the zone of trust. Does that mean we don't do all the other stuff that created that zone of trust? And in fact, the answer is no. We do absolutely everything we used to do to create the zone of trust. It's just now we admit that it sort of didn't work and we have to do extra <laughs> to, uh, to create that, uh, to, 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 to deal with that. So in a way, you know, is zero trust you know, in, in, in a way, an admission of failure that we really never did have a zone of trust? I, I think in many ways the concept of zero trust is born out of the failures of the security industry. Hence what I said before, the, the, the firewalls, the antivirus, the data loss prevention software, uh, the hygiene efforts, all those things didn't actually deliver the trust that was necessary to um, protect the integrity of the information assets physically and logically. And so it, that concept of just saying, I now have to start with the fact that nothing can be trusted is because we've not stopped the cyber risk cycle. Now, there's another element of zero trust that was born out of the concept of beyond corp that, that Google had put out a few years ago where, where the perimeters, as we've all been saying for years, have vanished, right? Things are in clouds, you've got apps, they're on-prem, they're off-prem. And so in those type of environments, you also have to approach trust differently. And you have to think about of how do I establish trust in an application? How do I establish trust in that device is Malcolm's device? How do I establish trust that Malcolm is Malcolm on that system? And so you have to think about contextually how you're gonna establish that trust framework, so to speak, and, and starting from a basis of I'm gonna trust nothing and then establish trust is an adequate way to do it. But I wouldn't say that it's continued the same things we've done and add more. I think when people have done that, they're basically um, adding lipstick on the pig they already have, rather than taking the opportunity to re-architect the entirety of what they're doing and figuring out how to best establish the trust. But even in the Google uh, case, uh, you know, they have an incredible you know, ability to manage the suspicion of everybody inside their environment with all sorts of proprietary technology. But even in their case, they have all of the perimeter defense to stop people from getting in. So the zero trust zone isn't uh, a 
isn't replacing the, the other, the old paradigm. It sits inside the old paradigm. And I guess that's what, what I see as sort of like the kind of, uh, uh, rel in some ways, redundant or silly part of, of zero trust, which is, yes, we'll have zero trust, but we're going to have that same, we're going to still create the zone of trust. And, and so that's, it would be one thing if, if the vendors were saying, hey, you don't need all that. We've, we've done such a good job with zero trust. You now no, no longer need perimeter security because everything is suspicion, uh, under suspicion and we do such a good job of protecting it. You don't need all that stuff. But nobody's saying that. Well, I think the, the, the historical notion of uh, the perimeter is again different. I had a, a view years ago. I wrote about it in in my books that from literally the early two thousands that people are the perimeter, and people are the perimeter for a few reasons. One, they're where computing is happening. Right, we've moved personal computing from a desktop to a laptop to my Fitbit to my phone to all those wearables. So. It's, it's with me, it's computing and communicating all the time, but people are also the perimeter because they're the decision makers, right? Right. They're the ones who've made lousy risk decisions in some cases that have uh, allowed the recycle to occur. And people are also the creators of technology who've created technology with vulnerabilities. And so I think we have to think about the entire uh, notion of trust and the notion of the perimeter in different ways right. than we've historically done. But our thinking has not got, our, our thinking of a zero trust world is way ahead of the implementation of the zero trust technology that we have right now. I guess that's the point I'm trying to make. It doesn't have to be. I would look at uh, Silence's environment and now one could argue I, I've but, had- but, a, but has any of your customers turned off its firewalls? In some cases they have on their clients, their client-based firewall. Right, right. Their network device, firewall. Yeah, their yeah, network yeah. firewall. They'll need to have some level of a perimeter there. Yeah. Uh, but client firewalls. Yeah, we've had some that have done that. Right, right. Okay. But I, yeah. So, so it is replacing in some sense. It's in replacing some of the perimeter. Um, it's replacing uh, um, host intrusion prevention, uh, which doesn't really prevent stuff. It's uh, replacing traditional antivirus. Um, I've actually had uh, customers and friends and peers that have shut off and de-scoped DLP solutions. Because when I asked them why they bought DLP, they had said to prevent intellectual property from being exfilled by the bad guys. And I go, if they can get past the signature-based antivirus, if they can get past your intrusion detection systems, if they can get all, past all that stuff, what makes you think they're not going to get past a signature-based DLP? Right. Well, that's the perfect segue into the second question. And that is, so far, it seems like cybersecurity has been completely additive. You know, you know we started out with antivirus, then we went with, you know, firewalls, and then, you know, uh, there's all sorts of deception technology and everything else that you see being added at this show this year. And I have yet to find somebody who has done a significant amount of pruning of their portfolio. Most portfolio adjustments are adding new stuff. And so that can't con continue forever. So what do you see, you just mentioned a good example. What do you see as uh, solutions that can be pruned from portfolios? And how would this pruning take place? And what do you think will be pruned first? And you know, by what? You know, what will prune other things? And then 
has anything really been pruned? In some cases, the answer is yes. I think things have been pruned. But this actually the nature of the talk that I'm giving tomorrow afternoon, because the notion of defense and depth has actually turned into expense and depth. It's been more, 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 more. We're buying more of the same crap that didn't work and adding it back in. So we've, we've ballooned our investments. We ballooned our staffing. We have um, gorged at the table that the cybersecurity industry continues to lay out in this all-you-can-eat buffet of buy more, more, more. And the reason for that is, and many in the industry don't like me saying this, but the security industry profits from the insecurity of computing. So at a macroeconomic level, the industry has no economic incentive to solve the problem. They have the profit motive to sell more, to need more resources. And that is uh, fundamentally why I also think we've stayed in this lack of pruning because the industry doesn't want the pruning to occur because then it would shrink its revenue. So you mentioned one case where you said that if you really accept uh, you know, uh, that a solution like DLP is going to uh, stop data loss protection, DLP is data loss protection, um, if you're really going to put a solution in like that, then you're basically assuming that something is likely to get in or someone is likely to act badly and then you know, try to escape with data throughout your system. Now, what you're saying is that if you can create a confidence level in all of the other protections around that, you can say, I'm so confident that I don't think that anything is going to act that way and I can turn some of that off. I, that's definitely true, but you also have to look at it in terms of controls. Is the control designed and implemented in a strong fashion, or is it insufficient or flawed? DLP is fundamentally insufficient and flawed. When, when it's there to prevent the uh, theft of data, right? I label something top secret. That becomes the signature. Well, if an, I'm an insider, and I have access to that top secret document, I know the signature that the DLP system is going to look for, in which case I call it grandmother's cookie recipe. I get past the signature. If I'm a bad guy who's gotten into the environment, I know it's top secret. I package it up. I encrypt it. I get past the DLP signature. The only thing DLP is good for is for a check-the-box compliance program and for keeping an honest employee from making an honest mistake in sending data someplace that they shouldn't. But or attackers... It, 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 could, it could be good for incompetent... Uh, it, it, uh, totally agree with you. Consciously incompetent exfiltrators. But real case in point, because I've seen this uh, happen and I've talked to, to peers about this, who've done the happy dance when DLP stopped something and they said, I just stopped... Uh, organized crime or nation state adversary, my DLP stopped the exfiltration of data. My view is that is completely wrong. They were intending for you to catch them so you would do your happy dance and think you stopped them to distract you while they were doing the real thing they were trying to do. So they set off the DLP alarm and you looked there while they did something else. Got it. And so one, so the principle of pruning, you're saying, is to increase your confidence of incoming threats so that you can stop uh, 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 
looking for outgoing uh, uh, problems. The notion of pruning for me is one around outcomes, right? Forget about the features and capabilities of the products. Are they delivering the business outcome that you bought it to do? Did it stop malicious code with a high degree of efficacy? Did it um, stop the um, misuse of assets by an employee? There's business outcomes we've got to do and look at it and say, if it's not delivering the outcome, then why have the control? There's, there's a notion that I've written about that I call my nine box of controls. There's three macro ways you can control for risk. Prevent it, detect it, and respond to it. And as you go from prevention to response, risk grows on a vertical axis. And if you look on the horizontal axis, there's three macro ways you can approach controls. Automated, semi-automated, and manual. As you go from automated to manual, cost grows. And, but there's this third dimension to this nine box that's called control friction. Because controls are a drag coefficient. They get in the way of, of people and data and business process. They chew up unnecessary compute cycles. And so the three business outcomes I've always looked at for the controls that I'm buying or deploying are what does it do to those three states? What does it change to my risk style? What does it change to my total cost of controls? And what friction is it creating on the business processes and on the users? And again, you talk about pruning. If you have a, a, a solution like Silence Protect with a high degree of efficacy that prevents the malicious uh, execution of malicious code, you can slow down your patching regimes and get yourself, and that's a cost issue. And patching actually introduces risks in addition to it's expensive. So you can play with a lot of different dials when you actually look at the business outcomes you're trying to achieve. Right, so what we were saying is that, that the pruning will happen if you focus on a complete set of business outcomes that you define as adequate cybersecurity and create a bunch of systems that deliver those outcomes and then systems that are redundant to those outcomes you can prune, essentially is what you're saying. Correct, but that will only happen if the executive management of a company holds the chief information security officer, chief security officer accountable to those outcomes on risk, total cost and control friction. Got it. And I assume you have a paper somewhere where you have this nine box thing. Yep, I'll send you the nice graphic on it and yeah, everything. I'd love to see that. Okay, next um, uh, uh, question is cloud migration. Now, the fact of the matter is that most cybersecurity is not in the cloud. Most cybersecurity spending is for systems that sit on premise. Um, we are, however, most of those systems, however, do have a cloud component now. You know, usually it's a machine learning or AML uh, or some other collaborative set of data that's being shared. So it's not that the, the, the on-premise systems aren't cloud-powered or cloud-enhanced, but they're on-premise. And so I would say that, you know, if you look at, and look, look at what people are writing checks for, they're still writing checks for stuff that they're putting on-premise. The, the, you know, the, you know, we're in the, what, 10 or 15% of, of, of spending is on cloud. So, uh, and when I say cloud, meaning stuff that completely lives in the cloud. So, how much is, is going to actually migrate to the cloud? How much, uh, how will this migration take place? How, 
much of how how bound are we to you know uh, on-premise cybersecurity systems and software? Well, I think I think you've got to again unpack this a little bit. The notion of all cloud or all on-prem, you know, the traditional AV vendors that everybody said, I've got on-prem, the agents on my system. And in fact, actually, it was multiple agents that was degrading the compute performance. But I've got that on the device, then I've got a management infrastructure that's on site. But guess what? Those devices were chatting with their back-end, quote-unquote, cloud systems to try and react to all the stuff that they couldn't prevent. And so they're basically bulk collecting the machine data, shoving it to their quote unquote cloud to try and do reactive analytics on things. So the notion that you know, um, cloud or not cloud, we've got to change a little bit. Even for silence, our agent is on your device. So it's an on-prem agent because it's on the device. The management infrastructure is in the cloud. And so, but, but we don't have dependency on the cloud for the efficacy of control. And those are the things that you've got to tease out. Some people are going to say, we're all in the cloud. Well, what happens when I'm on a plane and I'm not connected to the network? I'm completely exposed. That's why we've architected our solution so that the efficacy of control is not dependent upon the cloud. The management of the control and the policies and the automation that gives you yield off of your capabilities is in the cloud. So you don't have infrastructure cost. Got it. So what you're saying is that there's going to be a strong case for on-premise effective controls that run in a disconnected mode and deliver that protection no matter whether they're connected to the cloud or not. And that will, there will always be a strong case for that. As, as soon as you say, all of my uh, security is in the cloud, now you're saying that if I could disconnect you from the cloud, then you wouldn't have that security. Yeah, basically what I'm saying is you, if you have devices, I'll consider the device on-prem, right? Because it's your device. But you want an effective capability on that device to protect it, whether it's connected to the cloud or not. The cloud should enhance, and again, reduce the infrastructure costs, reduce all those other burdens. But a lot of folks that are doing this, my security's all in the cloud, it's, it's because they don't know how to actually execute locally with a high degree of efficacy, with a high degree of efficiency. We've, in essence, miniaturized our artificial intelligence and machine learning capability so that it can operate independent and autonomous from the cloud with the same degree of protection. That's the innovative cycle that we've done that is completely different than the way in which most people approach it. And I don't quite understand that because many other solutions have effective, you know, on-premise operation. Name There's, one. Well, I mean, most of the firewall vendors, don't they? I mean, well, if 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 they were effective, we wouldn't be having all of the penetrations of the networks, would we? Oh, uh, okay. So you're saying, I mean, in terms of uh, they're delivering the control that they promised to deliver, 
and maybe that promise is, is not complete. The, the, the firewall is like a chain link fence. Okay, so you're just saying so, we have strong promises. And they're promises. very permeable. Our, our strong promises are delivered uh, you know, by, uh, in, in our, in our on-premise control without resort to the cloud. Correct, and, okay. and by on-prem, it is not that you need the infrastructure, it's the fact that the agent is on your device and operates autonomously and independent from the cloud with the same efficacy of control and the management capabilities around that or in the cloud so that again, you don't have the infrastructure cost and burden that you do in traditional approaches. Okay, so uh, let's go to our bonus questions. These are, th we have time. So these three questions I'd like to get, you know, your quick take on just as a, a, a way of giving advice to CISOs and helping them, you know, benefit from your experience in these realms. Yep. Um, in the, uh, research mission on earlyadopter.com called you know, creating a, a, a balanced cybersecurity portfolio. What I try to do is take a financial um, uh, uh, portfolio analysis view of the CISO allocating spending over various categories. And so in allocating that spending, it seems to me that there are choices about allocating spending to non-cybersecurity aspects that actually would have a huge cybersecurity impact. For example, I think having an incredibly powerful real-time backup system is a tremendous cybersecurity uh, benefit. Uh, and that's not considered cybersecurity spending, but it gives a lot of cybersecurity benefit. Um, there's a variety of operational processes also, like you talked about patching and how patching can be um, uh, a risk creator or it can be a risk reducer. But there's a certain level of patching delay which is sort of incompetent. Yep. You know, there's other levels of patching delay that are, are uh, more defensible or more thoughtful. So what would you consider if I said to most CISOs, consider taking five to 10% of your budget away from what you consider cybersecurity and spending, and instead putting it into operational discipline and improving your operational discipline, your measurement of that, your training, your preservation of that, your, your constant looking for new ways of, of improving your operational definition, that discipline through automation of configuration and, 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 and on. Do you think that would be a beneficial trade-off for most uh, CISOs? I think it can be. You know, the, the notion, like you said, of what I'd say limiting the scope of a CISO's job to just the traditional things and under the domain of IT, I think is incredibly narrow. I think the CISO role or chief security and trust officer role, as I like to see it, is very broad. It encompasses privacy. It encompasses uh, business continuity and disaster recovery. It encompasses a variety of legal compliance uh, items. It encompasses traditional infosec. It is also uh, encompasses product security because every company is becoming a technology company. They're creating apps. They're they're putting technology into the products and services they sell, and and so for me. The, the CISO should evolve towards a chief security and trust officer role across all that. And they also need to get out of not only looking at their own budget 
and in essence taking an approach of innovation comes through starvation and where am I just going to starve myself of things to drive a level of innovation as well as they need to think in total cost realm. They need to look at the entirety of the corporate spending and the corporate tax because of the controls and look at that as a budget that they can actually use. And for me, it's not one of balancing. This is like a calculus equation. It's one of optimization. How do you optimize each of the coefficients in front of each of the variables in this multivariate equation? Because when you're balancing, I'm going to say I'm going to trade off privacy versus security. I'm going to trade off user experience versus security. That is flawed thinking. That is what perpetuates the problems we have. We have to think about architecturally how do we do all of it. And then when we fall a little bit short, then we make the hard calls and make the trade-offs. But don't start from a trade-off perspective because you're always going to sub-optimize one thing versus do the harder work on how do I do both. The next bonus question is about uh, cyber cultures. How can cybersecurity education and training be made part of everyday life in a company? Um, this is, goes to the fact, to the point that you made about the perimeter being people. People are the ultimate perimeter. And unless you are actually not only improving the tools and the mechanisms and the technology that people have, but also the thinking that people have, their habits, you really are always going to be highly vulnerable. What have you seen that good companies are doing to actually address this on a continuing basis? Well, we've all got to do the, the basic training of the employees and stuff, but, but for me, those that get it bind their, what I'll broaden say, information risk mission, not just the security mission, because privacy and the business continuity disaster recovery, all of those things to the mission of the business, right? If I'm delivering healthcare, how can a mistake in information security cost somebody their life? If I'm creating cars, how can a mistake in a connected car kill somebody? If I am uh, feeding the homeless, how can an information risk disrupt my ability to feed people that are hungry? There are connected items in that flow and so I always look at it from that perspective and try and really understand what, what the organization's doing and connect the dots of the cyber risk to that and then figure out the direct impacts and the indirect impacts. Now, the scariest thing that I ever hear from CIOs, from CEOs and stuff like that is they go, well, we have a business to run. And so from that nature, they think that um, accepting risk is a control, and it's not, because there's a difference between accepting risk and acceptable risk. And then you've got to go, the risk to who? Is it the risk to the business? Well, if it's the risk to the business, yeah, the business unit GM can accept that. But is there a risk to your customer? In which case, that's probably a broader dialogue. And or is there perhaps a societal risk that you're creating? Got it. And so what you're saying is that it's a lot more boring to say, hey, you know, make sure you patch your this or update your iPhone or whatever. And that's one thing. Another thing is to say, here's a list of things that you can do to make sure that nobody gets killed in our hospital. 
and, 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 and if you're doing everything on this list, you've reduced, you've helped our patients. And oh, it happens to be a bunch of cybersecurity stuff. So that's essentially the way you would motivate it. Exactly. It, just like the subtitle of my books, when I had this epiphany when I was running security at Intel, that I used to have, and I think a lot of security teams have, this safeguard information asset, blah, 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 statement uh, type thing. Go three simple words, protect to enable. If you're not protecting to enable the people, the data, and the business, you're getting in the way, you're wasting money, and you're not achieving the business outcome. Okay, last question. Um, cyber insurance. I'm on a variety of chief technology officer lists, and I'm a member of a chief technology officer club, and a lot of people are being asked to buy cybersecurity insurance, and none of them want to, but they all end up buying it. Now, I uh, had a period of, as a banking reporter, and when I was a banking reporter, all these banks were failing. And they all had directors and officers liability policies. And the directors and officers liability policies were intended to protect them from liability suits brought by shareholders. And it turned out every time a claim was made, there would be a lawsuit because the directors and liability officers insurance company would never make, would never pay the claim. Now, it seems to me that cyber ins security insurance is very similar. There's an incredibly narrow set of conditions described under which they would actually pay. There's all sorts of escape hatches that they have in the policies that would help them avoid payment. Uh, it's unlikely you're going to recover any meaningful amount of money compared to the premiums you spent. But yet, CISOs can't win this battle of avoiding buying this insurance. First of all, do you agree with my analysis? And second of all, how can CISOs win the battle of, of buying inadequate insurance? Uh, by and large, I do agree with your analysis. I think the cybersecurity insurance marketplace is the wild, wild west. And there's too many caveats, there's too many uh, conditions, there's too many uh, fine print details that, as you said, cause an escape uh, for the insurer to have to pay. Having said that, um, I do think there is an appropriate place for insurance, just like there's for fire, flood, earthquake, you know, automobile, uh, stuff like that. I think the question just becomes, what's the premium you're getting? What coverage are you getting? And, you know, the insurance coverage doesn't mitigate risk. It, it just provides financial um, support for covering some of the damages. And, and so I think there could be um, ways in which it could be constructed, particularly if you have a strong cybersecurity program. If you've demonstrated, I prevent with a high degree of efficacy um, the malicious code execution. I have a decent hygiene program. I've got all these things and, and you've, and again, pruned your environment, decluttered the controls, and demonstrate on those three vectors of risk, total cost, and control friction, you're doing a good job. Well, by and large, you probably won't have to claim against your cyber insurance. And the cyber insurance just gives your board and a few other people a peace of mind. And if you get a low enough premium for that and you get peace of mind, it might not be a bad thing to do. I see. The idea is can, can, you know, seek, to, seek to get the lowest premium possible. <laughs> by having the best program All right, right. out there. If you're doing that, 
then if you can afford it, it might just again give you that extra bit of comfort. Um, but in reality, it, it doesn't, you know, insurance doesn't prevent the risk from occurring. It just provides some potential repayment for your expenditures if a risk manifests. Well, this has been a wonderful podcast to kick off RSA. Malcolm, thank you so much for your time, and uh, we'll be publishing this on Early Adopter Research as part of our balanced cybersecurity portfolio mission. And there, great alarm. <laughs> Thanks, Dan. Thank you so much. Thank you.